0: You're listening to Elevate the Hunt, the podcast that takes you deeper into the issues surrounding our lifestyle and passion for hunting. I'm Everett Headley, and I'll be your host. Hey everyone, I recorded this episode with Rick Brazzle just before we both got on the road for show season. A couple of months later and after several shows, I was impressed to see the First Hunt Foundation represented at so many of them. Rick's passion to see others experience the hunt for the first time has grown into a national movement in 38 states. Being a hunter education instructor for over a decade in Montana, I really like seeing new hunters helped along. You don't know what you don't know, and having someone to show you those things really shortens that learning curve. I signed up myself a few years ago to be a mentor and make it a point to help at least one person find their first animal every fall. Listen to Rick's story and think about where you would be if you had to learn to hunt on your own, I think you'll be inspired to sign up too. Thanks for listening. And if you can drop us a review or share us with a friend or find us on Instagram, we'd really appreciate it. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here today. Thanks, Everett. You know we're not that far apart in terms of Western neighbors, but we were discussing how winter has set in, and I really don't want to trip over the lock saw to, to get to you. And if you've never driven that road, it can be it can be a little bit fun at times when there's some snow and ice. So I'm happy to have you virtually on my on my screen today.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way, man. That road gets treacherous.
0: Rick, you're the founder and president of the First Hunt Foundation, and I'm a proud mentor and, and partner with you in that organization. And I'm I'm happy to talk today about not only the need for mentoring new hunters, but there's, there's controversy that's come up over the past year, year and a half about the need for R3. And if it's something that we should even be pouring conservation dollars in, And it's a huge part of state organizations and other NGOs and the R3 standing for retention, recruitment, reactivation, and and the idea that we want to keep and pursue and get new hunters in hunting. And, and so I think that what you're doing, what you've been doing for so long is a great movement. Would love for listeners right at the onset to plug. If you're not a mentor, not actively helping somebody develop their own hunting career and learning what we do as hunters, you really owe it to yourself and our our legacy to to bring other people in the fold and Rick, what you guys do there at at First Hunt Foundation really helps set people up for success. And we're going to dive into some of that. So again, i just really passionate about this myself. I don't want to talk for the whole 90 minutes. We're going to be together. So I'm going to pass it back to you. But Rick, (laughs) what was it that made you say there's a need for the First Hunt Foundation?
1: How it actually got founded was I was in Washington State and I was a forest supervisor with the U.S. Forest Service and I owned 20 acres and all around me was alfalfa fields and these Deer would just come out of the hills and go right past me into the alfalfa fields. And in Washington, you're allowed to you know, put out some bait. And that's controversial in its own right. But I thought, well, maybe if I can keep a few deer to stop here, I can let some kids come up here and harvest some deer. And I did. And I had seven come harvest their deer, their very first deer. And I videoed some of it and talked to them. And I was with some of them. Their parents were with some of them. But what got me was years and years later, I'd run into those kids on the street and they'd come up and thank me. Hey, Mr. Brazel, I'll never forget that time that you let me ha- go to your property and, and harvest my first deer. And they just had this beam on their face. And so I thought, as I got ready to retire at the Forest Service and try to think, well, what am I going to do with my life after after working for the Forest Service for 36 years? I thought, well, you know what? I remember those kids. And what if I could duplicate those experiences thousands of times and have people just remember that first experience and that's kind of where the term first hunt came was first hunt experience and it wasn't till later that R3 came about and it made me realize like hey we're on the right path here I mean we're helping these kids have these life-changing experiences We're teaching them how to become hunters and now R3 came around which kind of validated what I was doing so it sort of we got started before R3 did. How long ago was that? Well, 2015 is when the foundation actually got started. But when you had those kids at your place, how long was that at the same time? Yeah, that was probably been six years before that. Okay. So, you've been doing it for a little while then. Oh, yeah. And all this time, I've still been helping kids. Even when I was working with the Forest Service, I was constantly trying to find kids to take out hunting because I thought, i got to give something back. You know, I started late in my life, I think. I mentioned earlier, I didn't start hunting until I was probably 14 or 15. My dad wasn't a hunter. My buddy and I just thought, well, God, we got to go hunting. So we just lived and breathed for figuring it out. We made a lot of mistakes. And we were in Texas. It was all private land. And of course, everybody knew us and they'd let us go chase rabbits and ducks and anything else and sometimes deer.
0: I would love to hear some of those stories. I mean, that, you know, not to tell tales on you, but that was, that was a little while ago, right? Back when Texas may have had a different shape and there weren't as many fences and Trespass fees probably weren't even a thing, and you you had Rome of thousands of acres, I am sure, and, and the adventures you had as a kid—that's that's the way to grow up.
1: Oh, I tell you, that, that was the days when you could look in the parking lot and people had the guns in the back of their car, their trucks, and you could literally go out in school and get the gun out and show it to people, and nobody even thought a word about it because if that just that was a culture back then, nobody was going to hurt anybody.
0: You know, you talk about that. So I think I was a sophomore in high school when the massacre at Columbine happened. And from that point on, there was a major shift. We used to carry our guns in our cars at school and we would cut class a period or two early. And when it was deer season and we'd go out and get in the evening hunt, right? And everybody knew it and nobody cared. But when that happened, there was this major shift in the culture and you couldn't bring guns on school. You couldn't even leave them locked in your car. I remember they would have our school dare resource officer. He would go and, and do inspections and it just really shifted how we did things. And, you know, as traumatic as that was and, and things have, have really shifted in, in other ways, I think there's a loss there where we don't have that type of freedom and we don't have that kind of carefree attitude as kids anymore and things are tightly controlled. And I'm not saying that I want anything bad to happen. Right. But I think that there was something that developed a character in us and it developed, this this sense of self-sufficiency and a healthy respect and understanding of what guns did and how to treat them that is really far removed today from from kids. And so when I get them, you know, 10 and 11 year olds in Hunter Ed, so many of them have never had their hands on, on a gun and they, they treat it like it's a video game. And it just it, it, it creates just a little bit of sadness in me for the nostalgia that's not there, but also, you know, what these kids are missing out growing up on.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't think we'll ever go back. I do miss those days. I'm with you, man. Totally with you on that.
0: So First Hunt Foundation, give us the direction you guys are going and how you try to bring that mentorship up to a level that is impactful.
1: We're expanding. Again, when I started, we were just about kids and I actually didn't plan on it going national. Uh, When I started, it was just something I was going to do when I retired, but I moved around with the Forest Service and had friends in many states. And when they heard about what I was doing, they had that same passion. They said, you know, I want to do that here. Can I do it here in this state? And I go, sure. All of a sudden, the concept came, this thing could get big. It could get really big. And now we're operating in 38 states. We're actually one of the largest boots-on-the-ground mentoring organizations in the nation. We have 800 and about 40 people now, and every week we get two or three more. And we go to shows and recruit them. So we'll have thousands. Someday, literally, we would be thousands of people out there teaching. We've moved into other areas. We do kids. That's our primary. But we have now a women's program uh, called Share the Heritage. We have a Connecting Heroes and Hunters program, which is working with veterans and first responders to get them to be mentors and to find people in their peer group. So we've expanded out to other areas besides just the youth.
0: I got to tell you, for me, I I like adult onset hunters. The kids I teach in, in Hunter Ed, it's great. You know, I get them for a weekend or so, send them home with mom and dad. And then I don't have to worry about, did you tie your boots right? Are your fingers getting cold? Do you, are you hungry? That kind of thing, you know, as, as kids can be. And as I, you know, thinking about myself when I was 12, 13, and I don't want to call myself a burden, but I'm sure my dad had to think twice about <laughs> taking me out hunting sometimes. Right. And I do remember my dad took me pheasant hunting and I had a four ten single shot break action. It was my grandfather's gun. And I was kind of my first, you know, adult type gun, you know, not carrying a BB gun that I could shoot, you know, little birds with. And I never kept my barrel pointed up. And so I was always poking it into the dirt. And I remember this trip, my dad had to go and clean out my, my shotgun four or five times and get the mud out. Right. And that last one, we had to walk back, I don't know, a half mile or whatever, back to the truck. Everybody else that was hunting pheasants, you know, they're online and and shooting birds and whatnot. My dad is hearing this as we're walking back and I had ruined the hunt for him. And of course at 12 or whatever age I was, I didn't realize this, but the rest of the weekend, I wasn't allowed to carry my shotgun anymore. And I'm sure some frustration on my dad's part, but it was an incredible learning moment for me where I learned that my shotgun and where it's pointed is, is really important. And if I don't, follow those rules and the hunt's not going to happen for me. Right. And so I tell that story on myself because I like to focus on adult onset hunters. I love taking guys out who are able to kind of fend for themselves in some way. I also give a little speech at the very beginning. You know, there's no pride in the wild where if there's something going on, I need to know about it before it becomes a big issue. Right. So there's, there's an element there where I still care and I want to make sure that they're having a good time, but I don't have to worry about the little things they can kind of fend for themselves. So do you have a, a focus on adult onset hunters that you can kind of help me with within First Hunt Foundation?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because in the R3 world, and I'm, I'm assuming your fans know what R3 is, you know, recruiting new hunters and retaining the current hunters and reactivating those that have left the uh, sport. But in the R3 world, there's a big push for adults and especially women. That's the fastest growing segment of, of new hunters because one they have the resources to stay into hunting if, if you teach a young person that's great and we want to teach young people and bring new young people in but they're not going to go out and buy them a new gun they don't have the funds or their parents have to do that if their parents already aren't hunters then it's kind of hard to convince them like hey you need to buy your your son or your daughter here a beginning rifle and maybe we can get you one for 250 or 300 to start with a used one and that's a lot of money but an adult they're going to have the resources. They really want to do it. They're going to take part of their paycheck and, and they're going to do it. So it's a little easier to get adults to stay into hunting and the R3 world starting to recognize that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point and And something that I've kind of seen a shift recently from other conservation groups that the big push and it looks good on PR and it sells really well and it raises funds is you don't get kids hunting. But what you're talking about is, is truth too, that these 30-year-olds, late 20s, early 30s, they have some disposable income, they have a desire, they have time in life to be able to get out there and go hunting. And, and that is really what is going to make the impact today, not only for PR dollars, but for public awareness and then being informed and involved as as sportsmen. Those kids at 12, it's going to be a decade, maybe two, before we start to realize the the return on an investment with them. And I'm not saying one is more important than the other. I'm just saying that I think there's an impact that they have at different stages in in the timeline that is really important to recognize. So I'm glad to hear that you guys there at First Hunt Foundation are are starting to see that too. I think about what it means to me to bring people into hunting, but I'm wondering, Rick, what are some of those bigger barriers or the reasons that you hear from people when you say, hey, you should be a hunting mentor? And they kind of recoil a little bit and they say yeah that's not quite for me
1: that's a great question and i'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the research that's out there now in the r3 world that has a lot of people kind of upset but basically it's saying that the term mentor should not be used with adults and that we are actually scaring people away on the mentee side or the the new hunter side because they view the term mentor as a more of an intimate relationship that they are the only ones who can pick their mentor you can't say hey i'm with first hunt foundation i'm going to be your mentor you can say with an adult i'm with first hunt foundation you know i'm going to be your coach and apparently they're okay with terms like coach or teacher instructor but the word mentor is getting a little bit radioactive in some ways with adults. It's not with kids because kids don't care. They're like a sponge. They're just happy you're going to teach them something, call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But in the adult world, apparently the research is pointing to the word mentor has a negative connotation, which also could go to if you're going to become a mentor, you may go, well, that entails more than I want to give. That means I've got to spend a lot of time more than I want to give. Where if you say, would you be a hunting coach for somebody? They go, yeah, I can. And so one of the marketing things that we're doing right now is we're saying stuff like, what hunting skill can you teach? And they're going, well, man, I can teach muzzleloader. I can teach archery. I can teach this. So they're kind of looking at themselves going, I can teach these things. And before you know it, they're a mentor. So don't say, will you be a mentor with us? Will you teach somebody the skills that you have in your head? Sounds like you're really good at it. And then we'll call it a mentor, coach or whatever later. Let's don't get caught up in the semantics of what you're going to do and maybe how much time, but you've got these skills. Let's teach somebody else these skills that you've been carrying around for a while.
0: So is it really kind of just appealing to the ego a little bit more, or is it just getting them to realize that they do have something worthwhile to give?
1: Probably a little bit of both because everybody has an ego. I mean, we don't want to. We don't want those kind of people that are egocentric, but uh, we want those people that got, you know what? I've got those skills. I could teach those.
0: What does a ideal mentor look like then? If you have a picture in mind of something you're trying to to find, what does that look like?
1: If there was one word I would pick, it would be commitment because it does involve time. How committed are you to teaching someone? If you can say, well, I'll take them out one time and that's it then that's really not what we're looking for. We're going to use the term mentor. One, we like it, but we just need to understand the nuances of where it's better used and where it's maybe not better used. But if you're going to be a mentor, a coach, or whatever, you're going to spend some time. You, you wouldn't take a, a football player and teach him one thing, you know, how to tackle but never teach them how to hold the ball, throw the ball or whatever. There's so much involved with teaching a person like a sport. The same thing happens with hunting. You can't just take them out and go, here's a gun. Here's how you put the bullet in. Let's go kill something. It's way, way, way more than that. And so we want that person who's committed and has some commitment to teach all of those skills. And it's long-term. It's going to be long-term. I've got people I've been teaching for, oh my word. Uh, well, since we started, our number one mentee now is a mentor, but I'm still teaching him things.
0: What's the flip side there of being a mentee then? What makes somebody a good blank canvas to, to start teaching hunting?
1: So you're asking to be a new hunter?
0: Yeah, I think if maybe if I'm looking for somebody to, to mentor
1: myself, what what's something I might be wanting to find in that person? And That's a little bit tough because everybody's different. Some people want to be a hunter because they've watched their parents do it. Some people watch TV shows. They, want, you know, they think, oh, I've got to go kill a big buck. That's not what we're all about. Uh, some people are wanting to do it because they see that it's going to bring meat to the table. It's going to be sustaining their family. So there's lots of reasons that you're looking for somebody that wants to learn how to hunt. We're looking for the person mostly that wants to feed their family. I mean, that's our our big deal is, hey, you can learn this thing. I mean, if you shoot a doe, you're going to be just as happy because this winter you're going to be feeding your family versus going out and getting the big thing you're going to hang on the wall. So, I mean, that's always nice if you can do that, but that's not what we're about.
0: Yeah. I asked the question only because I have taken a lot of people out hunting. and. The relationship seems to kind of just stop there they've gone they've done it once they've been successful, and I'd say about half of them have continued to do it and find it on their own and and find ways to to kind of increase their own knowledge. but after that, I find people are just they've they've experienced it they've kind of gotten to a point where they can say, "I have the fullness you know they've seen that and then they're they just decide it's not for me it's not what I want to do whether it's it's the processing portion or it's what it takes to actually get out in the field or the, the money that they see they might have to, to invest in order to have the gear necessary. So I've had this long track record where about half of my people I've brought into hunting stay in hunting and about half say, you know what, that's nice, but I'm not going to see you in the woods next fall.
1: Yeah, and that's going to happen. But that's not, that's not a failure. The way we look at that is you give them that opportunity to experiment with, a, with something that they had at least some interest in, or they wouldn't have done it in the first place. And then they find out that, well, maybe it's not for me. I mean, how many of us do that? Maybe some of us try art and well, we're not a very good artist, but we tried it, but we don't hate artists after that. We think, hey, we appreciate those people because they know the complexity it takes to do that. So we kind of look at it like even if they don't become hunters. I guess if they don't become anti-hunters, we've been successful. Those are the same people that are going to vote someday about a ban on hunting. And they're going to go, you know, I don't, I'm not against hunting. It just wasn't for me. I tried it. I saw the value in it. The people that taught me were very courteous and, and respectful. It was a good life experience. And now I'm not going to bash these people because just because I didn't choose to go down that path.
0: You know, that's a great perspective. I, I was kind of thinking maybe... My benchmark for success is I've replicated new hunters and they're, they're replicating more hunters, but maybe just bringing them in the, into the fold so that they have a better understanding is, is enough. And man, the organization and the intensity and, and maybe even the efficacy that we're seeing with anti-hunting groups, maybe that is just enough to bring people in and expose them to that so that they, when the ballots come out, that they're ready to vote for hunting instead of against it. So I, I can appreciate that better.
1: Uh, Well, I'm glad I helped you a little bit because that's, that's actually since day one, that's been part of what we've been about. We talk about that. I think it's on the website in the president's message. They're going to be the voters of the future. We want to influence them to think hunting is a positive thing, whether they decide to stay in it or not.
0: Rick, one of my challenges has been, I want to take somebody out hunting, but I've exhausted all the Friends that are willing to go with me, neighbors who will give me kids and let them take them out on their first hunt or, you know, short of standing on a street corner, just, you know, we'll take you hunting for free, which probably won't work. How can I get plugged in with First Hunt Foundation in a way that I can find this this supply of, of people to to take out hunting? Do you have a lot of people wanting to be mentored?
1: The short answer to that is there are a lot of people. The question is where do you find them? Some organizations have matching, but we're so broad, thirty-eight states, you know, how do you manage something that big with all levels of skills? One mentor as an example may just be a bow hunter. They said, I don't want to do anything but bow hunting. Another mentor like myself, I'll teach anything. I do everything. And so we kind of train our mentors or at least tell them where where they can find these people that might want to learn and there's tons of them i could give you a few examples church groups boys and girls clubs you know 4-h hunter education classes if you talk if you give one of our flyers or little brochures to the hunter education instructor and tell him what you're looking for him or her you're saying hey i'm looking for that kid or that new trainee that might not know where to go and so you give it to them and they give it to the person they may ask the question, how many of you are going to go hunting after this? And maybe some of them won't raise their hand and you say, why not? Well, I got nobody to take me. They hand it to them. So, so that's a great place to find them is hunter education classes. They're out there. I mean, we don't want to advertise. One of the things we've been big about is don't put an ad in the paper go hey anybody want to learn about hunting because you'll have 50 people show up and in your area there's two mentors and they're going I can't take 50 people out we just so don't want to ever over promise and under deliver that's, that's not the foundation we want to be so we organically try to have our mentors find the people through all these different avenues and the fish and game offices they get calls all the time and we get references in certain states, they know about us, and then they'll call us and go, hey, I just had a mom call me, their kid wants to hunt, nobody in their family hunts, and we just say, thank you. You know, we'll take it from here. Lots of ways to find these people that want to go hunting.
0: Well, kind of along those lines, Rick, how do you lower the burdens and the barriers to hunting but still make make it worthwhile and make it feel like these new hunters have have earned it and and not just been given something?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. When you say earned it i'm not sure some of them understand what earning it is some of these youth just have an interest and we want to take them out and explain to them what's all involved and then there's the barriers to getting into hunting such as gear purchasing gear and first foundation has been very big on trying to find companies that would give us products at cost that we can pass on to both our mentors as a thank you for the time you're giving and to the new hunters who are just trying to break that barrier to getting into hunting and getting in getting gear is one of them so as an example we're a king's camo dealer so we don't sell to the public but we'll allow new hunters and mentors to get all their products at cost no markup we're a vortex dealer we'll allow all of our mentors and the new hunters to get vortex products at cost at no markup if they're a new hunter just became a psc bow dealer and so those are the kind of things we're trying to do from the national office to give incentives to people i mean they still got to come up with the money it may be 40 percent off it's not free but we're trying to trying to make those barriers to getting into hunting less when you say they have to earn the right i, I guess i struggle with that a little bit because these new hunters a lot of them they don't even know where to go it's it's hunting one to them and so i we don't want to put any barriers in front of them to give them that first experience to see if they want to continue on
0: yeah i don't think i mean earn the right but maybe more along the lines of you know i think about the the story of of tr when they tied a black bear down in louisiana to a tree and he refused to shoot it right and so there you get the the teddy bear comes from that. And you have this great story of, of, of an ethic. Right. And, and so none of us want to tie a deer to a tree. Right. But we want to have their, we want to show them the realities of hunting that, you know, sometimes feet get cold and, and sometimes you'd rather go home instead of enduring whatever you're out there. And so I think there's an element there where you don't make it so easy that everything is just a give me but you also don't want to make it so hard that they just get totally discouraged and, and give up on the idea of ever becoming a hunter. And so that's kind of more the idea I was, I was thinking about. You, you want to lessen those burdens, but you don't want to make it too big of a, an entry
1: barrier. Yeah. One of the key concepts that we push really hard is just make it fun. I mean, it may be tough. We're not going to hike somebody out in a foot of snow and. And tennis shoes just to say, oh, well, you should have had good boots, buddy. Now you're learning your lesson, you know, (laughs) because they'll never come back. And their parents will probably be upset that they had frostbite. But we try to make it fun. And so they do want to come back. We want that multiple times event. So as much fun as we can make it. And if it's successful, our, our concept of success is not harvest. It's teaching and training and they have a good experience and they want to come back they want to try it again. And if they have a harvest, that's great because they're going to be able to have food on the table and they get the reward out of that.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate the field to table experience that you're talking about there. I think, you know, for me, when I pull something out of the freezer, it never gets old. There's always this great sense of satisfaction that I know where that animal came from. I knew what it took to get it from the field to, to the table. And then, there is a certain amount of pride I have in being able to prepare a dish that's that's tasty, and there's so many people that have this idea that wild game is supposed to taste like like a skunk, and that's just not true. It is some <laughs> of the most delicious stuff that you will ever be able to work with in, uh, on on a dinner plate. And so, I are you are you finding ways to help people better understand that that idea that. It's not necessarily about bringing something home, but it's about the experience while still honoring the other
1: aspects after the hunt. We try right up front when we're taking a new person out to explain to them about what's fixing to happen and to their parents. This is not a guided hunt. We don't even allow the, the word guide in our vocabulary. One, because there's a legal context in many states. If you're a guide, with just somebody taking you out with the purpose of harvesting, not training, but to harvest something because you're getting paid to do it, well, we're not doing that. We're a teaching, learning organization, and harvesting is hopefully a part of it. That's the end goal. I mean, everybody wants to harvest. That's why we're taking them out in the first place is to teach them how to do that. But we try to explain right up front, this is going to be difficult. You may or may not be able to harvest. We've had some great situations, though, where we had, like in Washington State, we recently this year had 12 hunters, that were able to get into the depredation tags that the landowners had. So we were on private land, had as does only in the alfalfa fields. And so all, just about all of them, maybe one or two of them didn't harvest because they were trying to do it with a bow or whatever. And it was a controlled situation, probably an 80% chance of success, which is not normal for hunting. But even then, teaching them how to shoot before they even got out there, spent a day doing that, and they were getting buck fever, over a doe that's standing out there that you and i would go at eh, that's a chip shot you know but for them it was like a monumental event to kill that first animal they were super excited and got to take meat home and we hooked them up with mentors for that future encounter so it's not a one and done hey you got just great experience in a controlled situation now you're hooked you've seen it you've learned you've harvested and now let's learn about hunting in the future
0: how do you get Around some of those unrealistic expectations that usually for me, it's kids, they come in with it. I've got to shoot a buck and it's got to be a four by four or I'm going home with nothing. And and they have this mentality that that's, that's kind of what's being served up to them. Do you have (laughs) ideas behind that?
1: Well, we, like I say, we set the expectations right up front. Just tell them, no, that's not going to happen. So if that's what you're thinking, then we probably shouldn't even be going out. I mean, a little tough love. This is hunting. It's not going to be shooting and killing. And so we're going to go out and we're going to learn this stuff. You may go home empty-handed. And if you see a two-point buck and you're waiting for a four-point buck, we're probably not going to be successful. I mean, yeah. we, I, that's not really that's not what we want to be. It's not what the First Hook Foundation is all about. It's not about trophies in any sense of the word. Of course, a t- trophy is... In the eye of the holder and a doe, somebody's first deer is a doe. That's a trophy in the sense to them because trophy is something to be proud of and you're excited about.
0: You know, I agree with that wholeheartedly. There is a term a friend of mine introduced me to a couple of years ago, but he called it the Betty Crocker Slam. And it's three species of females in a year. Or so an antelope, a whitetail and an elk you know, but you're getting the does or the cows of that species. And I kind of like that. And I've tried every year since then to accomplish the Betty Crocker slam myself. And I would love to be able to put together a certificate or something, but I'm pretty sure that the people who own the trademark there would not appreciate it. But (laughs) I, I think there has to be a way to recapture the idea that, that any harvest is a trophy of some kind. It shouldn't be a disappointment that I only got a doe. It should be, No, I got a doe and I'm going to have 40, 50 meals from this animal that are going to be just delicious. And I think about the picture I have of my mother. She shot her first deer and it probably was 20 years or more before she, since she had shot one. And I took her to my ranch and we, we harvested this white tailed doe and, and we had a little trouble finding it. And so when I finally was able to track it down, I went and got my mom who was still kind of looking around the the initial shot site and was showing her some of the sign that I was finding. I was able to record her coming up to the dough, which for me was a, was a really precious memory. Right. And then I got a picture of her kind of just standing above the dough with this ginormous smile. And uh, you could see this sense of wonder and amazement that I did this and, and it's mine. And, and and I helped her dress it out and take it home. Right. And we did what we do with, with deer, putting them in the freezer. She's still, it's been two years, maybe three since then. And I don't know that she's, she's shot a deer. She's gone a few more times with me, but she will talk about that deer all the time. And, yeah. and you remember that time, Do you remember that deer and finding it and a little detail will crop up again. And she'll share that with me. And I, my mom, I mean, 60, 68, 69 years old and sin, still has this sense of wonderment about what happened and, I don't know what we can do to bottle that up, but man, I wish we could give that to hunters around the world because I think it's something that's been lost.
1: Well, I think it's not that mentality where everybody gets the participation trophy. Your participation trophy is experience and knowledge. And if that's all you walk home with, then that's great. And we try to explain that right up front. We really hope that you're lucky. Your shooting skills that we've taught you pay off. We're in the right area at the right time and then you get the harvest, but if not, just the fact that you're in the woods and you're getting this experience and, you're, and your mentors teaching you about this trail and look this rub and, and maybe turkeys gobbling in the morning. You hear that. I took tur- turkey hunters out this last year and we heard the goblin and they were from Seattle. They were two sons and a father. They just thought it was the best thing that ever happened to them. They didn't harvest, but they just couldn't believe all the turkeys gobbling and hearing the, the birds in the morning. They've never experienced that in their life. And they said that they would never forget that. And that made me think this was a successful day, though no birds were taken.
0: What do you think got us to the point that people don't have that same kind of appreciation for just being in the woods that generations before us have?
1: The thought of urbanization comes to mind. I mean, there's generations now that have grew up never having the opportunity to even know where their milk came from they can they, in their mind it came from the grocery stores they don't even associate it with a cow and that's a uh, part of society i mean you go to the urban areas and these kids are growing up and don't have any knowledge at all about the outdoors i mean we're lucky we're blessed to live where we live and, and i can tell you the little town I live in, in Kamei, Idaho, every kid here is such a rural thing. They understand all that. They may not be hunters and may be not outdoorsmen, but somebody they know is, and they know that. But you go to the inner cities, maybe to Seattle, like I was talking about, and they have no clue. i gotta give you a real quick story. We were walking back from the turkey hunt, and the one young man said, there must have been an earthquake here. And I'm looking around like, what is he talking about? He's looking, I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, look, everywhere, there's all this soil that's disturbed everywhere, and it was gophers. I mean, the field was full of gophers. And in his mind, an earthquake caused that because he had no concept of what a gopher was. And I explained to him about gophers and how they turn the soil up. And he looked at me like, wow, that's interesting. But he had no concept of that because of his upbringing in the city.
0: You know, I just wrote about this idea about how hunters connect other people to nature, right? The disconnect, it is crystal clear The story I used in that article, I was getting my groceries from Walmart and the girl that came out to put them in my car, saw my goose decoys in the back. And one, she thought they were ducks, didn't know what a Canada goose was, but two, she didn't know what they were for or what, how you would use them. And so she was so disconnected from, from hunting. And I talk about how you can have that conversation with people. And I think it's really important to be able to have just some kind of like pocket, notions and pocket kind of answers and responses to certain questions, but to be able to have stories like that, that you can relate to somebody real quickly and just share that experience because they are so just disconnected. And and as hunters, for me, this is one of the, the greatest aspects of hunting is that I am completely immersed in that world. And you get to a point where the civilization and modernization that's kind of numbed our senses has now, been renewed when you're out there. And so you, you start to hear things and see things and smell things that you hadn't before. And you have these just tiny little glimpses that almost feel indecent, right? Like you're not supposed to be there, but you see this squirrel chasing another squirrel and the interaction that happens there. And then it gets on its stump and it just starts to eat on that pine cone. And you move just over so slightly and he'll stop and turn and stare at you because you're not supposed to be there right you have these these lifetime worth of moments that that person who grew up in the concrete jungle just is not going to right and i think it's so important that as hunters we make attempts to connect people back to nature because if we don't they're never going to see it right and they're going to grow up thinking it is the Disney movie or the Fern Gully movie, and that's just how it is, and and, the, and that's not reality.
1: Yeah, so one of the things we've done this last year, we produced two videos. One was of a turkey hunt, of 30 new turkey hunters having their very first experience from the training of how to shoot a gun all the way to going out and, and trying to harvest a bird. And we did the same thing with those 12 deer hunters. And we can use those things to educate some of these folks that have never been around hunting and, and see people similar to themselves. We have a lot of diversity in those uh, videos, people of color and stuff, and th- and they see that and go, you know, I could do that because they see how excited those people are learning and how excited they are after the harvest, and so that's one tool that we're, the foundation is trying to use, and I will say another thing that just maybe for you and the, your listeners, the foundation is, is not political. We purposely will not get into the fray of any of the politics going on. I'd started that early on when we founded it. I thought, you know, we can spend a lot of energy uh, in in that arena. And we all know what we believe and what we do. And so let's just go out and teach it. Let's be that white hat organization that's out there teaching new people and focus on that there'll be people who don't like what we do. There'll be people who are anti-hunters. There'll be people who are anti-gun. And there's enough people out there tilting those windmills that we're not going to spend our energy doing that. We're going to spend our energy training and teaching the next generation of hunters.
0: I think that's really important too, Rick. I I just recorded a podcast with the Sportsman Caucus and, and how people from both sides of the aisle really come together and find that common ground to unite behind on, on wildlife issues. And you can't have a conversation in our our culture today without there being sides taken. And I just, I don't like how divisive it has become. And so I love the idea that, that you can use hunting to unite different cultures, different perspectives, different value systems, and and, and get to a point where you can have these shared experiences around a fireplace and, and you don't have to worry about, am I going to get lit up on social media for this stance that I've taken or something like that? And I think it simplifies things a little bit, which in my life, I I can really use uh, some of that and just some genuine feel good stories that Again, I think I could use more of those. I think we all could.
1: You know, I drive all over the country and my my truck that the foundation owns has our logo on the side. First Hunt Foundation has a shotgun and rifle and a bow. On the back has a picture of a young girl shooting a rifle and a mentor leaning over training her. And so I'm going on the interstates and I can it's I don't know, fifty times I've had people pass me and give me the thumbs up because just seeing that picture they know we're teaching hunting or teaching shooting, it looks like, but I have yet to have anybody come up and give me the other sign, <laughs> you know, like the anti-hunters. I keep waiting for somebody to come by and give me some, like you're you're teaching people to kill things or whatever. So I always kind of gauge that, like, well, so far, so good. Everybody that's so far has been real positive. I mean, it's mostly hunters or people like, thumbs up, like, we know what you're doing as they pass me on the interstate. So
0: <laughs> Well, we both live in an area and in, in the West, where hunting is really very much part of our culture and our, our heritage. So we're we're very fortunate in that regard. But I, I think you could go to some some of our bigger towns. And if you wanted to, you could stir up some trouble. So if you're looking for it, let me know, Rick. I'll point you where you need to go.
1: Well, I, when I stay in those towns, and I've stayed in them with my truck. I always worry about coming out in the truck being destroyed or keyed or something. Seriously, because it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to put this truck out there. It's obvious what we do.
0: That's something I I've taken serious too because I I do travel a lot myself right and I don't have any stickers on my truck and, and unless you're really looking you you probably wouldn't know that that this is a truck that that hunts a lot right I have a I do have a topper and I have a basket on top right and that might be the extent of it and it's got it's got a little bit of elevation to it and it's got some pretty aggressive uh, off road tires but I have everything tinted and blacked out and and I don't have any 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 logos on there and. I try to be as as incognito as possible because yeah, there's some places where there's uh, some uh, some very trying to be as appropriate as I can here, but some very active anti-hunting elements in, in places that um, I want to hunt, but they don't want me there. So
1: yeah, they might just see your truck as a redneck truck and they're afraid of you. <laughs> that guy's I'm got okay a gun. With that. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with <laughs> being thought of as a redneck. That guy's got a gun. I'm not messing with his truck.
0: Man, well, and I don't want that either because I don't want somebody breaking anything in that. Oh, that's a truck that looks like a gun. You know, I, I think it was, uh, I think it was Bill Engvall, uh, that comedian. He had a little bit he did about a, you know, truck looked like a gun lives there or something, so people would mess with them. But sometimes people just break into those trucks to find those things these days.
1: I actually had my truck broken into in Amarillo, Texas, and they stole nineteen or yeah, nineteen hundred dollars worth of stuff out of the back and the cop told me, he said, they probably broke in because you have the gun symbols and they thought there was a gun inside, which there wasn't, but they sold a lot of our personal stuff, my tools, all that sort of thing that I had to replace.
0: Yeah. Rick, what do you feel are the current trajectory of, of hunting and and maybe mentoring within hunting?
1: You know, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I think I have a lot of hope that we're going to continue doing what we're doing. There's enough goodwill out there. There's enough people, even in politics, there's a lot of folks in politics that are hunters. Um, So I I, I guess I'm positive that we're going to continue on. I I get concerned, again, because of all these folks we just mentioned that have no clue that are going to be voting someday. I mean, look what happened in Oregon recently, and hopefully the courts and all that are going to turn that around, and 90% of the state voted against it, but it was the big cities without going into the bill that I don't totally understand, but we both know that it's not a good thing for hunters and for gun owners.
0: You're talking about their gun control bill that they just passed.
1: Yeah, the gun control bill, but but it was the cities that caused it to pass. And so if we can educate as many people as we can about guns and about hunting and all that, then when they do have those votes, we're going to hope that they, uh, they pass. And by the way, you know, there was a lot of Not a lot, but at least one big study recently that said 70-something percent, like 75 or 80 percent of the people in the nation that were surveyed in these big studies support hunting if it's for gathering food for yourself. If it's for just killing and trophy hunting, they won't support it. But they do support hunting, even though they don't hunt, never have any intent to hunt. They support hunting as long as it's for food gathering.
0: You know, I think that's a really good point when you talk about what's going on in Oregon with with the passage of of their gun control bill. But I also think about the game commission over in Washington and what's going on with bear hunting. And then I dropped down to Colorado and the ballot initiative there that forced their fishing wildlife agency to bring wolves and manage wolves into Colorado. And all of these decisions are being made in, in the urban sphere. They're not being made by people who are either biologists on the ground or conservationists who have direct real life experience there. And I think about it, you know, 10, 15 years ago when people started to say, we need to we need to bring people into hunting, we need to to correct this shift in in declining hunters. And you felt like a prophet in the wilderness when you would say if we don't do that, then the natural progression is people aren't going to understand hunting and they're not going to be voting for hunting. And what we're realizing is uh, is that that prophecy is now becoming fulfilled, and it makes me think a little bit more about recent R three or rather anti R three movements where people are saying we need to reform hunting, we need to keep that circle small, and, and we need to stop some of these efforts to to bring people in or keep people in hunting, and and to me that just seems very antithetical to to what we're needing right now and what we want as hunters, which is the continuation of our hunting heritage and access and opportunities, and hopefully an an increase of, of it long-term. And so Rick, I'm really kind of curious how, how you as, as a person, as a mentor, and then as a foundation, how do you really start to respond to that anti-R3 kind of rhetoric?
1: You know, we, we get a lot of that. We go to the shows, talk to a lot of people, I mean thousands of people probably more than anybody else we go to shows where 50,000 people go through and we talk to a thousand of them as they go by our booth and ask what we do and that sort of thing we get some feedback too that there's already too many hunters out there why do we why do we need more hunters and I get that I've been out there where I had a hunt messed up because I was hiked in and all of a sudden somebody come up on a four-wheeler and I'm like dang you don't thought I had this place to myself but other people are here It may be upset that my hunt was ruined, that they were able to get in there. But the data shows that the age of the average hunter is old. I mean, I'm I'm 68. I'm still out there actively chasing, climbing trees, putting stands up, snowshoeing. I'm doing all the things I should. But, you know, 10 years from now, will I be able to do that? I don't know. But there's a lot of folks out there that are going to be tapping out. Just, they don't want to, but they're just going to be going, okay, I got bad legs, I got bad knees, I got bad heart, whatever. I can't do this anymore. So the facts are there that those numbers are going away. Maybe it's 10 years from now. So I guess I'm, we're, the foundations looking out there. So, yeah, we will agree. Yeah, maybe there is a lot of hunters today. Maybe we don't need any in certain areas today. But what about 10 years from now? What about when all these people are leaving? what about if we aren't bringing in some new blood and we all are complacent that we're just sitting here letting it happen it may be selfish i believe a lot of these folks are selfish they don't want other people out there because it's competition for them they just want that little honey hole to themselves and and as long as you can keep your own honey hole, i've had those you've had those hope nobody ever finds them but sometimes people wander into them it's a free world and they they get that chance to find that spot that's a chance for success you know i the anti-r3ers i go to the national r3 symposium every year 250 practitioners of r3 state fish and game agencies the researchers the ngos non-government office organizations that are doing that sort of thing and there's a heavy movement excitement about it it's not going away so the, the naysayers can say all they want, but in my mind, there's too much energy behind it for it to ever go away. And that's what's given me hope that let, let them, it's a free world, free speech, say what you want. The science I don't think is behind it. I think 10 years from now we're going to have issues, but let them say what they want, but we'll keep doing what we do. I mean, as long as we see happy faces for the foundation, we're seeing people that are excited about getting into what we are excited about. And that means something.
0: Do you think hunting looks the same in 20 years as it does today?
1: I don't think it does, partly because of change in technology. I mean, just look at, we talked about where we started out, you know, with old iron sights and scopes were just getting to be, look at the optics we have, look at the range finders we have, look at the technology that's happening with game cameras. I mean, just go, it's changing. Uh, The world is changing. Technology is changing it. So it's going to look different. I don't know what it's going to look like. But the biology should still be the same. I'm a biologist by training, so I support the fish and game agencies. Some people don't. There's two sides to fish and game agencies, the biology side and the political policy side. You can argue all you want about that, but the biologists are the biologists. And I trust those guys pretty implicitly because I was a biologist. And if if it's voodoo science, somebody's going to call them on it. It's going to be peer reviewed eventually. Somebody's going to call them on it and they should if it's, if it's bad. So the science is going to tell you how much, how many animals to harvest, how many does to take. That's not going to change. I don't think that's ever going to change and it shouldn't change, but the technology side obviously is going to change.
0: I want to chase a rabbit real quick, since you are a, a trained biologist. There are a lot of new students coming into wildlife programs and they're not hunters. They don't have that hunting background. And so they're moving forward with that kind of viewpoint, and and graduating and then becoming uh, wildlife managers themselves. But again, totally unintroduced to hunting, or if they are, it's from such a distance that it's not something that they embrace. Right? So they're they're making decisions and and they're trying to to manage it in different ways. And and so the science is what it is, right? But there's that social component that you're talking about that they're now beginning to kind of insert into their own findings and and then assumptions and, and theories on, on how to manage appropriately. Do you think that's going to become a bigger issue as we move forward? And, And do you have maybe some efforts that, that the First Hunt Foundation is making towards those future wildlife managers who don't hunt?
1: I think it is going to be an issue because it's, it's a reality. Some of those folks that are getting trained that don't have that background and maybe don't have that interest in hunting or in the positions of being a biologist. But again, their data needs to be sound. It can be challenged by other scientists, other folks. The foundation, we don't get into that side of thing. Again, we're a teaching learning organization about hunting outdoor skills. And that could very quickly get into the political arena about this group says this, this group says that. They're getting into argument. We get all of our energy caught up in those arguments. So we're not going to get into that fray.
0: That makes sense, and I'm not trying to pin you down necessarily, but it's uh, it's something that I think about quite a bit because I work with some of these these educators, and it's a concern that they have, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I saw that. As, as a biologist, I was with the Forest Service, so we were into the habitat side, but we worked very closely with the fish and game that had the population side. Over time, even in our agency, I saw a lot of folks coming in that didn't hunt. We had a conference oh many, many years ago, and there was 150 wildlife biologists there. Five years earlier, probably eighty percent of them were hunters and the director asked how many people are here are hunters, and maybe only twenty percent of them raised their hand and I was looking around going, "Wow, we have changed drastically, so I get it there 's people that are in roles of being biologists that aren 't hunters hopefully they understand the importance of conservation and the North American model of of conservation. That hunting is a part of it. So,
0: well, that's my hope for the future. And if we stand by and do nothing, or we don't make attempts to to bring these people into hunting, I think what's going to continue to happen is what we see in Washington and Colorado, where science might be there. The social component is is also a very big portion of how wildlife are managed across the state. And you know, in Montana, we're seeing that where we have a lot of elk and we're finding ways to in strategies to manage those elk on private and public land. And, and what, what's the social component and how much does a landowner really want to tolerate thousands of head of elk versus the, the hunter who I would love to have elk behind every, every tree, right. Then make hunting season a little bit more interesting, but the, there's a balance there, right. And there's, there's an aspect to that that has to be understood from from both sides, and the same idea applies to where hunting is such a, a a vital portion of not only the funding but the managing of of wildlife in in our country. And when we have wildlife managers who don't know that or understand or even appreciate it, that can bode for some some dark times in the future. And it's on us as hunters and sportsmen to carry that torch and and, and invite them along on a deer hunt or at least give them the opportunity and answer some questions on, on what hunting really is.
1: No, I appreciate that. And one thing I want to point out that our individual mentors, and there's 840 of them roughly right now, and hopefully thousands someday, we encourage them to be as active as they want, petitions, challenging people, whatever. That's what they do on their own time. We're just saying as a foundation, we're not going to spend the energy, but we encourage our mentors to be actively involved so don't think that we're just neutral on everything we're just trying to spend our limited amount of collective energy doing positive things and teaching hunting versus in that political arena because you can get as a forest supervisor in the forest service i was constantly constantly in the political arena of somebody not liking what we were doing or you're not doing enough of it or the environmentalists suing you because they didn't like what you're doing. And I just got tired of trying to find that balance. So we're just going to do good stuff, man. We're going to go out there and train people and teach them how to hunt. That's what we do.
0: Well, how do you train hunters that want to become mentors when they they come to you and they say, well, start even there. How do I become a mentor through First Hunt Foundation? What's that process?
1: Well, the process, they make an application. We do a thorough background check on them to make sure there's no criminal activity, that we wouldn't want them to be out there with our kids or somebody. And I've turned down some recently that didn't make the cut. Then uh, we try to get organized with state directors, and we don't, we're in 38 states. So we've only got like seven state directors because we're a total volunteer organization. That's one thing unique about us. We have no paid staff, including me. I've never received a penny from the foundation. It's unique. Live off my retirement, and this is what I do. And same with our state directors that we have. A lot of them are are retired. We do a background check. Then we try to hook them up to a chapter. If they're in a chapter, they can decide, well, this guy's a duck hunter. This person's a bow hunter. And then, okay, if they get a call, okay, go with Bill. He's a a duck hunter. We'll get you hooked up with him. You want to learn how to hunt ducks, that sort of thing. So that's one of the things we're doing. But one of the things I wanted to bring it out sometime during this is that it's exciting. It's actually very exciting. We got a grant from the NRA Hunter Leadership Forum and the NRA Foundation for $120,000 to do an interactive online mentor training. This thing's going to be the state of the art. We've got another grant grant from the National Resource Mentoring Center, which is the probably the state-of-the-art state of the science in mentoring in the nation, and they're going to be a consultant, and we're working to pull this thing together. It's going to be free. foundation is going to own it. We're going to offer it to every state agency, to every mentor, no matter which organization you're with. It's a one-hour course to learn about how to be a better mentor, the things you need to watch out for, the things that could get you into legal trouble and all those sort of things, and so we're going to hopefully train everybody on things that they might not have ever thought about. It's not going to be how to load a gun. They all know all that stuff. It's going to be the nuances to being a great and better mentor, and that's coming. should be coming out next year. We're working on it now.
0: That's really exciting because I think that is one of the big questions I get from people is I just, I don't know what to do, or I don't know how to be a mentor, and where do I start, where do I begin, and so it would be good if there was kind of a checklist or a roadmap for for new guys coming in to say, these are things to work, to watch out for. You mentioned legal trouble and that's actually one of the bigger concerns I think people have these days when you're loaning a gun or a bow and they go and they do something dumb, who's responsible for that and, and, and what happens. And so I think that is, is one of the more vocal things I hear from people that keeps them from bringing somebody that they don't know out into the woods. Is there Is there anything that you might be able to speak to on that? Well,
1: yeah, I can give at least a little bit. One of the things that we do that's unique, and I say it's unique because I haven't found other organizations that do it like we do it, is we have a pretty comprehensive liability insurance policy for all of our mentors. And so if you're a mentor and you take, let's say, your neighborhood kid out and heaven forbid they fall down, break their leg or whatever and now this neighbor who's a good friend of yours decided that you weren't watching them close enough and that's why they fell down and broke their leg and they sue you, you have coverage through our liability insurance. And there's a little bit of insurance in there, a small amount for the for the mentee, more like minor cuts and maybe a simple break or something like that. But it's not designed to be health insurance. It's to be liability insurance for our mentors to cover them if they get sued now, if you're out there and you take somebody and you don't make them wear their seatbelts and you have a wreck, the insurance is not going to cover you because you were outside of the scope. You were breaking the law, so you're outside of the scope of that insurance coverage. But if you did everything you could to keep that person safe and train them and do the right things and some accident happens, then you're going to have coverage. And that's, that's a big deal. A lot of folks, we ask them do you mentor people? Do you take people out? I go, yeah, I do that. Why do I need to join your organization? i say, well, do you have liability insurance for the exact same scenario I mentioned? And they go, no. I say, well, join with us and you can have the liability insurance and there's no cost to you. That's something we just offer. There's no cost to sign up to be a mentor. You do a background check. only thing we require is you, you submit your data in of how many days you went out. We're trying to gather more data on species you're hunting, the age of the person, nationality. I mean, they're all asking for that, for the grants we write. So we're trying to gather gather that data. And that's really the only obligation is send in your data, then we'll support you the rest of the way.
0: Do you have in your training kind of some guidelines on how to not be negligent or what that really means? I mean, the seatbelt thing seems pretty obvious, but handling a firearm, is there
1: more there that somebody should be aware of? That's a good question. The way we address that right now is we do not do the hunter education gun safety that the state does. That's the state's responsibility. So when we're taking a person out, they have to have completed that. And then we take it from there to make sure that they're crossing the fence, not pointing the muzzle and all that sort of thing. But the hunter safety part is a state responsibility. And we don't take people out hunting without that. That's a given. They got to have that. So that's a little bit of our insurance that they've had the basics of hunter safety and, and gun control and that sort of thing.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I do wonder about that myself. I, I think, you know, we're such a litigious society, right? That you, you want to do what you can to protect yourself. But I think there's, there's this perception that what we're doing is inherently dangerous because there's a weapon involved. You know, historically hunting is one of the safest things you can do. One of the, the safest sports for anybody to participate in. But I, I think it's always in the back of our mind that we want to make sure that we're doing things right. But even if you do things right, that doesn't always protect you from Something that might be frivolous, right? And and, and so it's right. if there was something there that you could point somebody to, like your liability insurance that you're talking about, and then maybe training within what's coming up next summer. I think that would be really valuable.
1: Well, you're right. You know, a little quick story. When we tried to find insurance, which is very hard, we had insurance for a while with the NRA, but it's extremely expensive. It was like fifty dollars a day to take somebody out hunting. Uh, it was insane. And so we finally found a company that had us, and then uh, we outgrew them. We got turned down 17 times by insurance companies, and they told us why. And we had never had an incident. They said the reason is, they were blunt, the one that finally talked to us. Kids and guns should not be used in the same sentence. And there's always a chance of molestation, which is true. And so we finally found a company and a, a carrier that loved what we're doing and basically work with us and tweaking their policy to fit us. But they also said, if you ever have a big incident, we might end up having to drop you too, because it just scares us to death having all these people out there running around with kids and guns. There's other organizations that are starting to look at insurance policies that are closer to what we do, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up, to be honest with you.
0: Rick, what did mentoring look like for you this past season? Did you take some people out, have some, uh, some interesting hunts you might want to share with us?
1: You betcha. I took a lot of folks out. I, I average about 50 days a year of taking people out, either training them on how to shoot or how to hunt. I haven't added it up this year, but it's probably going to be in the neighborhood of about 50 days because I just entered the data and at the end of the year, we'll look at it. And I'm not done. I was, take, I was taking kids out last week on a muzzle or elk hunt. I took two young men out the week before on a rifle hunt for cow elk. Actually, you got into some pretty cool land that nobody else gets to go into very much. You've heard of the Wilkes Brothers. Uh, They own a lot of land in Montana. They own a lot of land in Idaho. And I got contacted by them going, you know, we'd like to offer a couple of cow tags to some kids. Could you find some kids? And I go, yeah, you betcha. And I had two young men, one whose dad died with COVID about six months ago. And he wanted to learn how to hunt. His dad was a hunter, but he didn't get to take him out. The other one was a widowed grandmother raising three grandsons, and he wanted to learn how to hunt. I've actually taken him out and harvested deer. So these two boys fit the perfect model of going out to these lands to go hunting. Nobody else got to go because they had a few tags left over, and they gave them to us, basically. And they didn't get the harvest. They did get shots, and no animals were wounded, which was good. But uh, got a little bit of the buck fever and couldn't get the shot off, and... And they were a little bit far further, than, and we couldn't get any closer. The elk were looking at us, and we had two-day hunt. For you and I, it would have been a, a, a shot that we could have made. They still talk about it, and they're going to be talking about it for years, and maybe we'll get them back next year. So they had the opportunity to go out there and hike around.
0: How do you document those hunts for them? Do you video or take pictures?
1: I did video as much as I could. I haven't put it together yet because, one, is the company would like to see that. Two, you know, like— if, We'd like to see what we did good for these young men. And I'm going to go sit down and video the grandmother and the mother because to the boys, it was great. But to them who can't hunt and don't hunt, it's like you gave my grandson and my son this opportunity that they probably would have never had ever. Because we have no friends that would do that, that you did and didn't charge us anything for. And they also bought all the food. These kids ate like kings for two days, I we did too it's like oh my gosh we had a senator Idaho senator who owns a company I don't know if he, wants, he mentioned his name that donated a Airbnb house so we all had our own bedrooms and it was crazy it just all came together within weeks they just said hey would you find some kids we'd love to take it and go yeah we make it happen and we did and so they'll never forget that I won't either it was great
0: yeah. My first hunt, honestly, I can't even remember. I, I grew up hunting. I'm very, very fortunate to have had a father that took me out in a family that, that also hunted. And my earliest memories are just of being out there hunting, but I don't ever remember being put up in an Airbnb and having somebody <laughs> cook for me and, and give me food like that. And then put me on a shot that I should be able to make. Uh, I, I don't think that experience ever happened for me, but if somebody's listening and they wanted to donate that, I, uh, I probably wouldn't say no for sure. <laughs> But one of my one of my big pet peeves is when I go out hunting with my buddies none of them can take pictures very well and they know this about themselves and if they're listening to this then you know I'm sorry I'm telling on you but I love to take pictures and I try to make sure that I you know, do things well and document it for him. Cause uh, I, I took a buddy out who had never shot an elk before at all. And so he said, well, I want to go do it with my bow and I want to, I want a bowl. And I said, oh yeah, sure. That'll be really easy. Let's just go do that. Well, after five or six days, we actually did get into elk pretty good. And on this very last day, the morning of, we're just a few hours from when we need to leave to go back to the airport, right? He ended up uh, arrowing one and uh, it was a really good experience for him. But I took these great photos for him And I was contrasting it with my own first archery bowl, and how I had to take these pictures by myself. Right. So I'm trying to like kind of make a selfie shot and do this, but they didn't turn out great. I don't think, but he has one that. Man, I, I feel like I'm bragging a little bit, but it, it should be on the cover of of some magazine someday. It's just a great shot. Not an overly huge, bowl. I think it was, you know, 280, class bulb. And I was able to record him walking up to the bowl as we found it. And so he has that memory preserved, right? And I think it's so important that, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, a little camera, the smartphones we got today will be good enough for these kinds of things. But documenting these first experiences for these 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 kids and these adult onset hunters who they don't know to take pictures and they don't know the memory that they need to preserve. But man, for us that have experienced it, I I think that's a pro tip for sure that if you're gonna be a mentor and be taking people out, you should have that camera ready.
1: Yeah, one of the incentives, I don't know if you remember seeing it last year. We did it, we're gonna do it again this year. We try to get all of our mentors to send in their pictures, send in their stories. And when they do, we have a contest with a free six point five creed more over the scope. And every picture is a point. Every video is like three points. Every story is like five points. So it's like, get this stuff in here. We want it for our records. We want to tell the world about it. And you might win a gun. So
0: Yeah, that's a really great plug. I might need to do that. Can I use pictures and stories from the past or do they have to be current to the year?
1: That need to be current to the year because it's a yearly contest. Sorry. That's too bad.
0: I was going to go back through my records and try and find them and just flood them for the year. My wife would say I don't need another rifle, but I don't know any hunter that would say he doesn't need another one, right?
1: Yeah, it's a great mentoring rifle just to take out, and you know, 6.5 doesn't kick, it reaches out there. And we use this for our annual report. We do an annual report every year, and that's what we're trying to gather the pictures and stuff for is our annual report.
0: You talk about that 6.5 being a a really good gun for people to borrow. I actually have a two seventy that I bought and used for the same purpose. It's very light kicking, right? So the recoil on it's pretty minimal. But the gun itself was, it was like a $250 pawn shop special, right? So right. I know it's accurate out to a couple hundred yards. I know what ammo works well in it. But if a kid dropped it and broke the scope on it, I wouldn't care. If somebody brought it back and the, the barrel had a 90 degree turn in it, I wouldn't cry over it, right? It's just, and it's killed a lot of animals and, and been really effective. But it's it's one of those tools I think I keep in my mentor tool bag so to speak that is not a lot of money it's a little bit but it's one of the bigger barriers and one of the bigger hurdles for people to get into hunting and they don't they just don't have a gun or they don't know what to buy and with all the options out there it can be really confusing for them but it's easy for me to just go here take this and for me to know that that it's sighted in and it's accurate and and it's not going to pummel them in the shoulder or in the ears
1: yeah most all of our mentors for the most part use their own guns similar to what you're doing The foundation is just, as we get organized, we're starting to buy guns for the mentees that we can take take them out. We don't loan them out, but those 6.5, CCI Spirit give us five, 6.5 Creedmoors with scopes a couple years ago for the Boone and Crockett Hunt Ranch. We have an annual hunt there, hunt on the front, first hunt on the front, and they give us five guns, and I hadn't been around a 6.5, and after using them there and killing harvesting a lot of animals. It's like, man, these are good little guns. I use this two forty three and I have my actual two forty three that I got when I was in the eighth grade that I'm still letting all my four sons have used, my wife, everybody, and now I'm having other kids use that same gun that I used a lot of years ago.
0: Well, you mentioned CCI and you mentioned King's Camo a little bit earlier. I would love for you to talk about the other corporate partners that have come in and, and said, we're going to support this effort and, and either done it with dollars or promotion or with equipment. So, Here's the, the opportunity to spotlight them.
1: Yeah, well, one of them is Wild Gear Coolers. They've been a phenomenal sponsor of ours. They've given us grants and that sort of thing. We started at an endowment in Wyoming, and we got an endowment going for the national office. And Midway USA Foundation is the keeper of the national one. And the NRA Foundation folks give us 50000 vista outdoor larry potterfield give us money to match that we got a hundred thousand in that we get five percent of that a year to help with our cost there's probably others i just can't think of them right now we've got quite a few that are
0: they're helping us well i'm sure they're available somewhere on the website why don't you go ahead and give us that the website how can we contact you and and uh, any socials you want to promote
1: you betcha you go to our website at www.firsthuntfoundation.org. To learn about us, you can sign up to be a mentor. We have a new category to just be a volunteer. We're finding that there's some folks that have skills that we need, maybe in social media, or uh, we'd like to get a fundraising committee going together that folks just are good at raising funds nationally, but they're never going to be a mentor, but they have those skills. So there's a volunteer forum you could sign up with as well because we need those kind of skills and you can just see some of the pictures in the past and see what's happening by the various states. You can go to each state and click on that and see see some of the events in the states. It's just a good way to kind of see what's going on in the foundation.
0: You guys also have your own Instagram. I think it's First Hunt Foundation. And you guys post a lot of the great pictures. I mean, if you're looking for feel-good content, I mean, it's definitely there. You've got kids and you've got adults with their their first deer. First, I think there were some pheasant pictures there recently. There was a pronghorn hunt that you guys did in Wyoming. That was a great success story. And I think people need to see some of these and see the faces of these brand new hunters and and the experiences they're having. So definitely want to make sure people go there. Also to the website to sign up for being a mentor. Rick, I really appreciated you being here today and looking forward to what's coming up in in this next summer with the new training program and then getting more people to to sign on to become mentors and, and take people hunting always love to give my guests the final word, so it's yours again. Really appreciate it, what you had here for us.
1: Well, thanks, Everett. It's been a joy. It's been a great visiting with you. I think we're kind of some kindred spirits there, man. Probably if we were very close, we'd probably be doing things together. But yeah, we just love to have anybody come that's just interested in helping the next generation of hunters. And come join us. Be part of the movement. We'll look after you, give you a bunch of good perks that you can take advantage of. But for the most part, let's just let's keep hunting alive man let's look 10 years from now and know that we were part of the success of ensuring that hunting is part of our american culture forever
0: well all my friends have gone away they say i did the walking what can i say i did the walking they used to walk beside me they turned the something beside me they turned away Keep walking on They say I did the walking And now they say I'm gone